welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual community and we're dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning. We're very glad you're here. I'm especially glad to see those of you who are visiting with us for the first time. If you have questions about this congregation or about Unitarian Universalism, please don't hesitate to ask either me or the friendly and knowledgeable people at the visitor table or anyone around you who looks like they know what's going on. This is a denomination with roots back into the 5th century. We have a strong tradition of teaching that there is a spark of the divine in everyone. And so we greet the divine in our midst on Sunday morning by turning to the person to our right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Seven years ago, the year before I got here, you all worked on a mission statement, got a good one, wrote it on the wall, and we've been saying it together every Sunday of the six years I've been here. There is an intention to revisit it every seven years, so this is our seventh year together. This is our seventh, this is, anyway, it's time to revisit. Let us say our mission statement together. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Our meditation reading comes from the writings of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. These particular words are when he is thinking about the problem of white liberals. It is important for the liberal to see that the oppressed person who agitates for his rights is not the creator of tension. He merely brings out the hidden tension that is already alive. Last summer, when we had our open housing marches in Chicago, many of our white liberal friends cried out in horror and dismay. You're creating hatred and hostility in the white communities in which you are marching. You are only developing a white backlash. I could never understand that logic. They failed to realize that the hatred and the hostilities were already latently or subconsciously present. Our marchers merely brought them to the surface. The white liberal must escalate his support for racial justice rather than de-escalate it. The need for commitment is greater today than ever. This is the time in our service when we breathe together in prayer or meditation. If you will, let us become quiet, understanding that the small noises of children and the noises of life are part of the silence in this congregation. Please breathe with me as we enter the wise silence. You know how uh, when you're an astrophysicist, you, you tell where there's a black hole by just observing the behavior of light around that place in the galaxy. You can't really see that the black hole is there, but you know it's there because of the way things behave around it. And that's how the system of injustice that I'm going to be talking about this morning works. 
It's invisible. I'm going to tell you about learning to be white as a little kid in North Carolina in the early 60s. I, I was aware of the sit-ins and the civil rights movement only because the grown-ups around me were saying this very thing that Dr. King said white liberals would say. They were going, oh, I just think it's such a mistake. They're making everybody so mad. Well, everybody, you know, was the white people. And, um, and that's the first problem. <laughs> I remember my mother driving us to school, Mulberry Street Elementary School in Statesville, North Carolina, where she was a teacher and I was in second grade, but not in my mother's class, which was good. And one day she just seemed randomly to me, but I know now that she was watching the civil rights stuff. She said, um, over there, she pointed across this field. That's where the little black children go to school. And I just remember thinking, wow, I it never occurred to me to wonder where all the little black children were. Because at Mulberry Street, it was all little white children. Never, It never struck me. It was invisible to me. And I remember she took us to the city pool the first day it was integrated She'd really never taken us to the city pool before. Um, so we were there on the day that it was integrated, and the atmosphere was kind of tense. I didn't really understand why it was that tense, but I, I loved watching all the kids have fun in the pool, and then I got in and had fun, and the sun was really bright, I remember, that day. Um, so I also remember her saying, and this makes me very sad to say, but I was learning to be white, and she had her responsibilities of teaching me to be white. And I said, oh, Mom, look, that lady has a beautiful umbrella. And she said, honey, when it's a, a black woman, we say woman. We don't say lady. And I was just like, that's weird. I was in the stage. I'm using the stages of intercultural competency that are laid out by a man named Milton Bennett, if you want to Google him sometime after the service. Um, you're welcome to use your phones during the service, but only just to like tweet about how, how fabulous the music is. <laughs> Milton Bennett's stages, I was in the first one, where your culture is the only one that's visible to you. If you come in contact with another culture, you're just kind of like, oh, that's weird. I remember because the people who lived next door to us, the Eberleys, were from Germany, and they were weird. They had modern furniture, and they had a, like an Alexander Calder mobile that hung over their dining room table. It was Everything was really modern and sleek, and Mrs. Eberly was very elegant, and I wanted to be like her. And her daughter's name, who was my best friend, was Lilith. Wasn't, that wasn't a name that was in the Bible anywhere. I was like, wow. I came from, I came from people who told stories about Pakistan, because that's where my mother grew up, and that was the best place in the entire world. And I came from Persian carpets and brass trays, and I came from horses, and I came from uh, split-level houses and private girls' school, and I came from horses and doctors who would fix you up if you got measles. 
for free because they were your uncle. And I, I came from people who had cattle in the backyard and who would talk to the children like they talked to the cattle. Um, get on over here. That was my culture. And I came from stories about the great-grandfather that would visit and feed poor families in the town of Statesville. Um, always the story ended with black and white families, Maggie, black and white families. So, okay, good. Um, I've talked to you all about him some, but I want to get off on a track and tell you all about him, but I'm coming back to my subject. So... Later on, when I was in high school, I came to a different stage of intercultural competency, according to Milton Bennett. My stage in high school was the reversal stage, where I think my culture is pretty much nothing boring, dry as dust, and somebody else's culture is much better. I loved my best friend fiercely. She was an African-American scholarship student to this girl's school. She grew up in West Philadelphia, and... I just thought I wanted to be just like her. I, I, I thought she was a queen. And um, I, I, this is ridiculous, I know, and I'm sorry how ridiculous it is. But I would pray every night to wake up black. And I knew it wasn't really going to happen, but I still, like when I was a little kid, I really wanted a horse, and I would really psych myself into thinking that it could happen. It could but, you know, when you're in ninth and 10th grade, you know, pretty much that's not going to happen. But I thought it would be wonderful. My dad was a, was a fierce civil rights fighter, um, not in the streets, but he was on the 6 and 11 o'clock news in Philadelphia on CBS. And all his essays and speaking engagements and preaching, he also preached as a, uh, not a preacher preacher, but a lay preacher. He, that was his subject, was affirmative action, civil rights and I just, I thought everything would be so much cooler if I had a better culture with better language and better music and prettier everything. But I came from this other culture, the Scots-Irish missionary culture. And, you know, we would, um, as I said, mostly we were from the South. And my boy cousins, we would joke that they had a that they had a, a room in the jail with their name on it because my family in the South was all about fireworks. And my, my boy cousins would drive around the town throwing fireworks out the window. That was their idea of fun. And, um, and then they would get pulled over by the police and taken down to the station. And we just laughed about it. And, uh, we laughed even harder when one of them got stopped by the cops and a syringe had rolled out from underneath the back seat. And so the police officer was taking this one more seriously. And it turned out, you know, it was from his daddy's doctor bag that was under the seat. It was saline or something. I don't, it was nothing. And we went down to the station and we laughed because, and now I know we could laugh because we were white. You know, we could laugh because we knew nothing was going to happen to them. They were nice white boys, doctor's kids, and the police were white as well. And I have no idea, actually, I have too much of an idea what would have happened to them had they not been nice white boys. If they'd been nice black boys, whole different story. You know that, and I know that, right? So, um, we had the privilege of never worrying about the police. Uh, Even at the wedding where um, 
my uncle Lindsay started setting off a cannon in, uh, again, fireworks in honor of the wedding in a neighborhood where you're not allowed to have fireworks. And his sister, the mother of the bride, called the cops because she was tired of the fireworks. And the cops came and talked to Uncle Lindsay. Um, And I don't know, for some reason they called me over. I was in my 20s, but I was a preacher. They were like, Margaret Ann, Margaret Ann, come over here. Talk to the police. Me? What? Um, Anyway, they got all the clergy in the group over to the police too. And, um, you know, the police weren't going to arrest my uncle. Lindsay is an orthopedic surgeon. I mean, you know, uh, we had privilege, dripping with privilege, many different kinds. So, and we had, we had the luxury of knowing that if ever we had to have a loan application or a job application, or if we had to go interact with the authorities, our odds were really good of running into somebody of our same race. You know, we never had to worry about going to the authorities and, and worrying about being treated badly because of our skin color. My mother was treated badly a couple of times, not badly, but as if she were ridiculous because she had grown up in what is now Pakistan. She would say things to the police like, um, do you need, do you need some money? She would try to bribe them because that's how she grew up. And she would say, Maggie, you know, you have to give the mailman money. Otherwise he won't bring your mail. (laughs) Like, ma, this is America. Anyway, getting distracted again. So we, white identified family from the middle to upper middle class, we could be certain that the police were our friends. And it never occurred to us. We thought if you had trouble with the police, it was because you did something wrong. It was invisible to us. The system was invisible to us. I could walk in the neighborhood where I lived at night. My sister could run in the neighborhoods where she lived um, and not have neighbors call the police because a suspicious person was walking in the neighborhood. We never thought about it. I could go to the grocery store and I can have my shopping bag and I can put the stuff I'm getting into the shopping bag without having somebody follow me around worried that I'm going to try to steal it. Part of that is my age and part of that is my whiteness. I can even, and this is dripping with privilege, I can even go get something to drink out of the cabinet in the grocery store and open it and start drinking it while I'm shopping without anybody following me around or going, uh, 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 have you paid for that? They're not going to do that. I'm a white lady of a certain age, and I have those privileges. So for me, part of the system is working pretty well. It's the way things are. And the way things are is powerful. And the way things are has different names according to what part of the Gordian knot you are addressing. When I was in seminary, we talked about the patriarchy a lot because the patriarchy was the reason why there were only four women ministers in my seminary class. And when we graduated, the patriarchy was the reason why we were patted on the head and given jobs as educators. I said, I do not want a job as an educator. I'm a preacher. And the man interviewing me would always say, uh, I'm a preacher. I need an educator. And I would have to say, I'm, I'm just not good at that. 
and there would be an impasse because I was a woman. I was supposed to be good at education and I was supposed to be good with children. And, um, and eventually I became good with children cause I had some and, um, that'll teach you a lot. So we called it the patriarchy and it's all connected, but right now today, what we're talking about is a piece of it, a part of it, a one way of seeing the big elephant in the room. And we're calling it the white supremacy system because it's a system that we have in the United States, not just in the United States, it's other places too, but we're not going to play what about ism today. We're not going to go, well, what about France and what about England and what about, yeah, it's what about everything. But right now we're going to talk about the white supremacy system in the United States as we talk about justice. And it's invisible to people who identify as white. It is far from invisible to those of us who are people of color. Far from invisible. And we, people of color, see the white people um, enthusiastically singing Lean on Me, and yet um, the white people have the privilege of turning off from the whole discussion whenever they want to, we want to, because uh, that's part of the privilege of being in the dominant culture is you can think about it when you're in the mood. It's like one of the things on the menu, justice, one of the things on the menu. And you don't have to think about it if you're not in the mood. So somebody could be leaning on you and then find that you had just wandered off. See what I mean? And what I want us all to do is to become safer to lean on. Us who identify as white people. Now, that is not to say that those among us who are people of color don't have cultural competency work to do as well. We all do. Because there are many different cultures in this world. I told you the culture I come from, and I, wanted, I want to uh, raise your awareness of your own culture by saying, have you ever dated anyone or been partnered with anyone who comes from a different family from you, hopefully? And... And you know that the culture they grew up in is weird and that your family culture did things the correct way and their family did things a weird way. They didn't do saving money right. They don't do spending money right. They don't do child raising correctly. They don't do interacting with the older generation correctly. They don't do discipline correctly. They don't do food correctly. They don't do arguing correctly. Do you know what I'm talking about? So you've had intercultural relationships with someone from a different family. You know that each family has its own culture. And then in a larger way, um, there are cultural things to being in different races. But you... You understand that it's invisible if, you, if you're in a certain stage. If you're in the, my culture is the only culture and everybody else's weird stage... That's one thing. And if you're at the um, reversal stage where, oh, your culture is so cool and my culture just is, is really boring stage, you might, you might find yourself in the place where most of us are, most white liberals are, and that is in the minimization stage, according to Milton Bennett. Minimization stage. You go... Oh, we're all alike under the surface. We're just all alike. I'm just going to treat you like I would want to be treated. 
I see the Facebook thing where the dancers of all different races go behind the screen and we're all just skeletons underneath. We're all just skeletons underneath. But see, we're not just all the same underneath. Biologically, yeah. But culturally, no. The culture is in the brain and in the experience and in the DNA. And some people have trauma in their culture. And some people have uh, certain kinds of food in their culture. And some people have certain kinds of music in their culture and, and body movements and, and voice tones. The culture I came from, if you raised your voice, my mother would say, don't sound like a fishwife now. For someone, and I, and I have uh, many friends who are in the Appalachian culture where you go out in your yard and you screech for your children. Y'all better get in here. I'm just going to cut a switch. I was flabbergasted. I was like, oh my God, you sound like a fishwife. But the cultures are invisible until they're not. So on Facebook this week, there was a large movement of hashtag me too, as women uh, came out as having been harassed or attacked um, in the workplace, like by a Harvey Weinstein. And it was kind of amazing because as it turns out, it's all of us. I would say 98% of all women have been sexually harassed and attacked. And some men were expressing surprise at the prevalence of this Me Too hashtag. Surely not. Surely this problem couldn't be all bad. It's not all men that act like that. Right. It's not all men, and it's invisible. It's invisible. Because the bad actors don't act that way around other guys at work. They wait until they are alone with the woman. So you go, oh, no, he's a good guy. I've never, I've never had that happen to me. I just don't think it happens. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's invisible until people start talking about it. And then we start talking about it for a little while. And then it'll be invisible again. And so the white supremacy system is as invisible as the war on women system. And we're trying to make it more visible. We, people of color, we, Maxine Waters, we, uh, liberal white people, we're all trying to make it visible and keep it visible. The system is not broken. That's the main thing I want to say. The system is not broken. The supremacy, white supremacy system is working exactly the way it's supposed to work. It's like a black hole. You see how things happen. You, you surmise that there's a system at work. You know what I mean? I mean, we have hundreds of black suspects who are executed by police. And we go, oh, that was a rogue cop. Well, but then he got not charged. He got off. He got away with it hundreds of times with black bodies, brown bodies, native bodies. Apparently, those bodies are not as important to not kill as white bodies. It's not just a fluke every time. It's a system that's working 
the way it was meant to work. See what I'm saying? And I could be wrong, but I don't think I am wrong about this. And I'm no expert about this, but I don't think I'm wrong about this. You watch what happens and you go, that's what the system wants to happen. And here's another thing I want to say. If you're a white identified person, the worst thing you can do with this information is feel guilty. Oh, I feel so guilty. I'm like, no, 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 blah. It's not your fault and you can't fix it by yourself. But we can work on fixing it all together. Those of us who are white and those of us who are people of color, we work together on fixing it. And the first thing to do when you want to fix it is you make it plain. You make it noticeable. You say, you name a person's race every time. If I said, like, we're at the park and I go, see that white guy over there? And it's like two white guys next to him. And then the third one is the one I'm talking to you about. Or I would say, I was driving my car in the neighborhood and this white guy was on a bicycle and he was in the middle of the road, just weaving back and forth. And I thought, what a jerk. And pretty soon a white friend of mine would say, why do you say white guy, white guy every time? Why don't you just say this guy? Because if you don't name the race, what does it mean? It means default, the norm, the white guy. But if you start naming white guy, white guy, it shines a light on the fact that we don't normally feel like we have to say we white people don't normally feel like we in my family have to say that white guy because that's the default. All right. So to make it less invisible, I have a friend who was on a train and he was struggling to get the app to work and it didn't work in time for the ticket to be on his phone. And the white conductor came to my white friend and said, ticket. And my white friend said, I can't get this thing to work. I don't have my ticket. And he said, I'll, I'll be back for it. And black man right in front of my white friend said, I haven't been able to get this to work. And he said, the white conductor gave the man a death glare. You need your ticket. That's the system right there. It was not invisible for a second. And my friend didn't be brave in time to say, hey, we have the same issue. Why are you giving him a death glare? And for me, you said, I'll catch you on the way back. That would have been embarrassing and awkward, right? Because it's taboo to notice the system. It's, it's rude. How rude. You're noticing the system you're not supposed to notice. How rude. There's no war on women. Like, well, why are thousands of women murdered by their partners? Thousands. Why don't we arm all the little girls? Just give them little girl guns. I'm thinking about my granddaughter having one. I'm thinking that is not a good idea. But we just don't talk about it. And if someone talks about it too much, they're seen as rude. Back in the day, abolition, Unitarians and Quakers, not all Unitarians, because some of them liked slavery, um, but the abolitionists would talk about it constantly. They couldn't stand to talk about anything else. As long as some people were enslaved, they couldn't stand to talk about anything else. Nobody invited them to dinner anymore because nobody wanted to hear it anymore. It was rude. It's disruptive. Sometimes you have to be disruptive because the way things are is very hard to change. So after the minimization stage is a, 
is a different stage. I hope that's the one I'm in now. I think that's the one I'm in now. I'm trying to be in that one now where you think I'm really curious about other cultures and I'm really curious as to see what other people's point of view is. And I really think that my meeting or my project will be richer if I have people who are from different cultures in my support group or my talking group that I could perhaps learn to think about things in a different way. I will be richer. You know, if you have a field, you're a farmer and you plant the same kind of corn, all it's going to take is one little fungus or one little disease and your whole crop is wiped out because you had no diversity. You had one single kind of corn. If you're an Irish potato farmer and all you have is one kind of potato, you have a fungus and you're starving to death and you have to emigrate to America, to Boston. Diversity creates strength. Sameness is weakness. Diversity is sturdiness. Does that make sense? But it's hard to remember because it's easier just to do things the way things have already been done. And to consult other people's point of view is effortful. So what I want to say is we all have work to do. Those of us who identify as white and those of us who identify as people of color, we all have work to do. Um, I don't know if you saw the movie Crash, but I thought it was pretty instructive. And um, in it, there's a a black man who has a girlfriend from El Salvador, I think. And he keeps saying, you know, you're people, you're Mexican people. And she's like, I've told you five times, I'm not from Mexico, I'm from El Salvador. And he's like, whatever. You know, that's not whatever. We're all individuals. You can't say, what do white people like? What don't white people like this or that? It makes you bristle when you're a white person. There's this fabulous, um, and I'm just talking too much and I'm going to stop in a minute. Um, because it's a very white thing to want to stop right on time. I'm going to stop right on time. I think that's a white thing. I'm not sure. Because I'm white, I don't notice it. It seems just right to me. <laughs> now I forgot what I was going to tell you. Oh, yeah, Stuff White People Like. Thank you. So there's this great website called Stuff White People Like. Um, My So-Called Life. Homeless. The website says, if you want to make white people comfortable, just have some pita and hummus out on the table. White people will be comfortable. White people like unpaid internships. White people like everything on time. And I'm thinking, but, but... Everybody likes, but everybody, no, I don't know if everybody likes it or not, but it's just a very instructive website and really funny um, to read. I'm not sure if it's funny for people of color. It may be just too close to the truth of the dominant culture. I'm not sure, but it's, um, it'll make you bristle and that is good for you. So what we're going to do, this is a Sunday where all UU churches are talking about white supremacy culture. It's called a teach in Sunday, but 
I have not done very much teaching, I think. I've just told you about me. And so we have a group in the church that's a joint effort between the People of Color group and the White Allies group. That's my understanding of it. We're just calling it the change team. And we want to move more toward being a safe for multiculturalism church so that somebody's not leaning on one of us and we just get distracted and walk away um, or say, hey, what are you leaning on me for? It's like, you told me, call me. I'll be, you know, if you need a friend, call me. Oh, that's why you're leaning on me. Okay, I forgot. Um, we don't want to be like that. And so we're going to have several teach-ins. We're going to have uh, an event every now and then where we can dig more deeply into this culture that's invisible to those of us who identify as white and that's uh, all too visible to those of us who identify as people of color. We'll work on ourselves and we'll work on the system. We want to make it visible. And then we want to take it apart and see the better thing that will happen at the end of that. Will you please say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice? We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Remember the way of the wind and breathe and blow. Remember the way of the fire and sparkle and glitter and glow. Remember the way of the water and ebb and flow. Remember the way of the earth and grow. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.